The master is here, and he bids us to draw near. That's a beautiful song. We also sang about marvelous, infinite, matchless grace. We wouldn't be here this morning without grace. Welcome to the service. I'm so glad to see all of you here and anticipate worship with you this morning. I was thinking over the last number of weeks, and it's actually been a really long time since I've been here on a Sunday morning for a number of reasons, but it goes back to July, so I do still go to church here, and I enjoy it, but between, I was figuring it up, I think between preaching away about three times, uh, going to church camp out, I was sick once, and I was gone a weekend too, so that adds up to about six or seven weeks, so I'm really glad to be here and uh, enjoying the worship time this morning already. Shall we pray and invite the Lord to be here with us? Father, thank you for the message we hear through music and singing, and we believe you are here. And so, Lord, we come to you, and we want to uh, meet you here this morning. We invite your Holy Spirit to come here and to show us your ways, show us your truth. Give us insight into your word. And Lord, I pray that we could receive it with open hearts. Thank you for all those who could be here this morning. I pray for those who cannot be here. Why you bless them where they worship today? And we pray that everything that is said and done this morning could be to your honor and glory. In the worthy name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the uh, last number of times that I've been preaching, I've been focusing on the Sermon on the Mount and particularly the Beatitudes. And I intend to continue with that this morning. The last time was uh, a couple months ago, actually, was... Uh, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, is the one I preached on last time. And so this morning I'd like to go to the second one. <clears throat> Somebody know what the second one is? Blessed are they who mourn. Are they who mourn. Very good. Thank you for that. Blessed are they that mourn. And is that the end of the verse? What happens after that, after they mourn? They shall be comforted. That is right. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's found in Matthew chapter 5. I'm just going to quickly read over the Beatitudes as a bit of a review and to help us see these Beatitudes as, as, one, whole, um, as one whole body. We, we're not going to go through all of them, but I'm just going to read the first number of verses there. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. As I <clears throat> approach the second beatitude, I uh, want us to again think about why do we study these at all? Are they relevant for today? 
And my mind was drawn to John chapter 10, where, where Jesus talks about himself being the door. He's the door to the sheepfold. And in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, he talks about the thief coming in. He says, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. Right? Jesus has come that we might have life. But then he says what kind of life he wants us to have. And that they might have it more abundantly. So I'd like for us to keep that in the back of our minds as we, as we go through these, is that Jesus came to give us abundant life. That is a life that, it's described elsewhere, it's like rivers of living water flowing out of us. Abundant living. But what seems to be almost mysterious is how can mourning be part of that experience? Because he says, blessed are they that mourn. And, and so we must believe that this abundant life that Jesus is calling us to includes these things that are seemingly paradoxes. They, they seemingly are contradictions. Blessed are you when you mourn, for you shall be comforted. So keep that verse in the back of your mind. The parallel passage in Luke, which is the Sermon on the Plain, says it this way. Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Talks about weeping instead of mourning. Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. That's in Luke 6, 21. There is, a, there is a striking contrast in the parallel passage in Luke because in the passage in Luke, he, right after he gives the blessing, he follows it with the woe. All right, so he says, blessed are you who hunger now and who weep now because you're going to laugh. But then here's the woe, which is the opposite. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Now think about those two contrasts a little bit. Very opposite, to laugh or to mourn. And he says, woe unto you that are doing it now. Now does that mean we can't have any kind of joy? Does that mean laughing is, is uh, forbidden? We should not ever be happy? What is he getting to? I think the deeper meaning here is the woe is pronounced on those who shun mourning in life now. In other words, if you look at the world's philosophy, the world's philosophy is to, to put away sadness, to put away mourning at all costs. Um, there's not a high value placed on mourning. And I thought of it even in terms of, of when there's death. And this may not be true across the board, but how many times in the world in particular when there is a death, you know, maybe they just quickly cremate the body, and at best, there's a short memorial service, and then that's it. In other words, we don't spend much time contemplating death. Because why would you? Um, th this woe is pronounced on those who don't have hope. So the difference between us and the world is we have hope. We have hope in Christ Jesus. So, so the world's philosophy of mourning is, let's just get past it. And so, therefore, the philosophy of the world is, uh, forget your troubles. Be as happy as you can. You know, live for the weekend, because... Uh, when the weekend comes, we're going to at least drown out the rest of our lives with a good time. And, and that's what we live for is, is avoiding hard things, avoiding mourning. Uh, their organization of their lives around the pursuit of happiness, which, by the way, is one of our rights as, as uh, citizens of, of the United States of America. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Pursue happiness at all costs. That's the world's philosophy. Uh, seek pleasure, entertainment. Focus on the good times. In fact, don't we or, doesn't the world orient its whole 
life around, uh, even your working life, is, is oriented towards a retirement, towards good times, right? We're working towards that. And, and so anything outside of that, sorrow, sadness, is something to be avoided or to um, push through it as soon as possible. Do everything you can to not have to face your problems and troubles. But the problem with that is, is that is only temporary. There is only a temporary happiness that comes by, by the pursuit that the world has. It doesn't last. It doesn't last now, and it, it won't ever last in eternity. But Jesus comes, and he says something different. He says, blessed are you who mourn. And earlier in one of the previous messages, I think I gave a definition of blessed, but it has to do with being in a, in a good state in our relationship with God, a place where we're at peace with God. You are blessed. You are in a good place with God when you are mourning. That's a stark contrast between what the world's philosophy of happiness is and the philosophy of happiness or joy that we have as Christians and how Jesus calls us to mourn. But I want us to look a little bit deeper at the question of mourning. So for what should we mourn? Is there blessing in simply being sad? Um, it would be hard for me to say that it's a blessing to have to sit through the funeral of a close family member. Most of you have done that at some point. Is that blessing? Is that what he's talking about? Are we blessed just because we're going through, through sad times? <clears throat> well, I think all of us, based on the songs we sang this morning, we know that God does give grace. Certainly God gives grace in those times of mourning. But is that the kind of mourning he's calling us to in, in the beatitude here? Or is he calling us to something even different? Is this beatitude apparent in the church at large today? Is it apparent in my own life? And maybe we need to just describe it more before we, before we dig into that. Um, but I would suggest, though, that mourning does not have a very high value. First of all, not in the world at all. But I wonder sometimes if even in the church, is mourning seen as, as a good thing in the sense that Jesus talks about it? And there can be several ditches that, that, uh, that happen here. Um, I thought about, and I don't want to pick on any particular groups, but the one that came to mind historically was, was the Puritans. You've heard of Puritans or Puritanism, and uh, if you ever, if you read American history or studied that in school, I just remember uh, reading about how the Puritans, they were trying to purify the Church of England. They were, there were still remnants of Catholicism in the Church of England, and they were trying to get rid of that, and I think at a heart level, they were very committed. They, were, they wanted devotion to God. They wanted a pure life, and they were striving for all these things. But over time, as things tend to go, there became probably more of a, of a rigidness and a, a shunning of fun and a shunning of, of good things. And the idea was we will be so focused on God that we will let nothing distract us, and therefore any fun, any, any goodness. Um, and so there seemed to maybe be a, a ditch that was moved into. And some of that, you see that carry over, not just in, in that particular group, but you see that uh, there, there can be that um, maybe culture of the church where we look at the Christian life as it's a very solemn, very dour experience. And there's a heaviness there, and, and we're just, you know, we're just pilgrims plodding on the pathway, you know. And I think there's been a, there can be a reaction to that <coughs> because ultimately that can turn into something that's not real. The mourning that Jesus is talking about is something that is in the heart and coming out. And so if, if we're putting on, and there again, I want to I remind us that I don't believe the Beatitudes are given as a list of things to do. They are all 
they are all worked out in the heart and they come out and they push out into our lives. So if you look at this thing of, well, it's something I must do, I must mourn, therefore I will put on a sorrowful face and I will be, you know, I keep my eyes downcast and we give this impression of piety. Well, we all know that that doesn't win anyone over, right? That's not a compelling testimony and it's because it's not real, because it's something that's put on the outside. And so what it does, it can give, it can give an impression that the Christian life is just, it's a burden, you know? Being a Christian is a burden, and so we're just hanging on for dear life, hoping we make it to the end. It's a miserable experience. Well, you know, over time, there's a reaction to that. But then there's an opposite ditch. The opposite ditch is that the Christian life is all joy, and there's just always happiness, and we are, we are always shouting praise the Lord, and that can also become a superficial experience where we feel like, well, I must put on I must put on a good face for Christianity, and it still doesn't come from within. And there can become this, this glibness or even a, this jovialness that's not even real, all in an attempt to, well, we don't want to be you know, the sour-faced Christians here, so we're going to do this, and hopefully we can win the world that way. But I would say that either one of those comes up short because there's nothing happening in the heart. All right, so this morning, things you try to put on, or things that you try to become somehow in your own strength. That's not the point here. <coughs> and maybe what maybe what's happened here, maybe maybe the reason we see these two um, these two attempts sometimes to portray Christianity in these ways is maybe we, we have a bit of a defective doctrine of sin. Because I think ultimately the morning that Jesus is talking about is it has to do with our own sinfulness, at least at a very base level. That's where it begins. And so if you've never understood your sinfulness, if you've never understood your need for rescue, how can you ever experience joy? Think about that. You can't really experience joy until you know what sorrow is. Isn't that a bit what the paradox is? We could talk about joy, but unless you know what sorrow is, how can you experience joy? And so I wonder sometimes if what we see in the Christian church today is maybe a lack of understanding of sinfulness, first of all. We have to be lost before we can understand what it means to be rescued. hope that makes sense to you. <clears throat> if there's never a deep conviction and sorrow over sin, then it's hard to understand and appreciate the joy of deliverance. Uh, think about a person who falls overboard. They're on the ship, and all of a sudden they, they fall into the water, and they're struggling, and they're about to go underneath, and here comes a lifeline with a life preserver, and they grab the life preserver. Imagine the feelings of just utter joy and relief as they're hauled in and they are rescued because they knew they were so close. It was so close to being, to being gone forever. So that idea of there must be the sorrow that comes from recognizing where we were, but followed immediately by a joy that comes from deliverance. Turn your Bibles over to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. I'm not, this, for context here, this is when Paul uh, has kind of been rebuking the Corinthians here for, for some sin in the church there. So this is kind of jumping right in. But I want you to understand what our, what our attitude towards sin needs to be and repentance. This morning of sin. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, he says, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, 
but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. I'm going to stop there. But notice here what he says. He kind of wounded them by his rebuke. But he says, your sorrow led you to repentance. And he says, godly sorrow produces repentance. So this, this idea when Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn, I think that mourning must begin with a sorrow for our sins. have a godly sorrow, a sorrow for the way my sin has wounded and stabbed the heart of God, for the way my sin violated his holiness, for the way that my sin, um, by listening to the lies of his enemy, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to his enemy, and what does that do to God's heart? And when I understand that that's what my sin did, he says that kind of sorrow leads us to repentance. And repentance, of course, is a turning away from, turning away from sin. And turning to God. So here he says the process is godly sorrow, it produces repentance, which leads to salvation. That is so foundational to us coming to salvation. So I would go back to um, my description of, of putting on sorrow or putting on joy in our Christian life. If you've never had that experience of godly sorrow through repentance to salvation, then, then it's not going to be real. It's going to be something that's put on on the outside. But this is always the pathway to, to salvation. <clears throat> the contrast was the sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow of the world produces death. No wonder the world doesn't like to dwell on mourning, right? Because there's no hope. There's no purpose in sorrow for the world because it says it produces death. But furthermore, he says, what did it produce? When you had this godly sorrow that, that led you to repentance, he says, it produced a diligence in you. You did everything you could it says, you wanted to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what desire, all this zeal. Suddenly there was a zeal to clean house. Like, I want to be clear of this. My sorrow is leading me to, I want to have a clean life. I want to I change. I want to move that way. And that's the result of, first of all, godly sorrow, which then leads to repentance, which then leads to salvation. Does that make sense? That's the starting point of this mourning. Blessed are you that mourn. Blessed are you that come to Christ but you come through that pathway of sorrow to repentance that leads you to salvation. It's, these beatitudes kind of go together. So blessed are the poor in spirit. First of all, we have to recognize, come with a contrite, humble heart before God, right? We've got to have humility before he gives us his spirit. We've got to have sorrow before we experience joy. And so these, these beatitudes are kind of linked together as, as we see them through. But they begin with a negative, and then they end with the positive. Blessed are the poor in spirit, they receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they find comfort and they find true joy. So conviction of sin must always precede conversion. Sorrow over sin must precede the joy of salvation. You 
have never sorrowed over sin, you cannot understand the joy of salvation. It's just the way it is. I would say it's probably true. Most people spend their their, uh, lives trying to find joy and happiness. Probably everybody you know at some level is seeking after joy and after happiness. But most times, they fail to find joy and happiness because the pathway to joy passes through sorrow and it passes through conviction over sin. So to find this blessing, there has to be mourning first, a mourning over our own sin. Turn now to Romans chapter 7. Very familiar passage to us. Here Paul describes the wrestling that happens within. That wrestling between our flesh and our spirit. The desire that we have to please God and yet the the bondage that we have to sin. And I think this passage, as we read it, I want you to get a picture of what mourning looks like over sin. So let's go down to Romans chapter 7. Let's start in about verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from from the body of this death? Just, Just let that hang there for a little bit in your mind got to get what he's saying there and I, I think this I think as we read this passage I think this is a description of someone who is already on the road to repentance because for a mocker or a scoffer they don't care they're just going to do whatever they want to do but here you see Paul describing a situation where man in, in, in my mind and in my heart I want to please God but there's this law of sin that I, can't, I don't want to do it and then I do it and then the thing I want to do I don't do and you see this wrestling between flesh and spirit and he comes to that and he says Oh, wretched man that I am. That to me is mourning. There's a sorrow like, why am I this way? Who is going to deliver me from this? And there is a sorrow that it is this way because in his heart he wants to do what's right, but in his flesh he just does not have the power to do it. And then he ends by saying, I thank God. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. So this mourning leads to not despair, it leads to a point of decision. Basically, I can't do this on my own. I cannot do what is right on my own. But I thank God that there's a way. And that way is through Jesus Christ. And when we come to him with that sorrow over sin and we, we come through the pathway of repentance, there is Christ waiting there to give us a new life and to give us hope. And jump now over into chapter 8 because now here's the second part of this. And you see it right at the beginning here a little bit. Let's go to verse 6. So now he's come to Christ. He says, there is now, therefore now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. 
For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now just pause there for a bit, because he just got saying in the previous chapter uh, that it was the law of sin which was ruling. Well, now there's a new law. He said it's the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus that set me free from the law of sin and death. No longer does it have to rule and reign in me, but I'm now under, I have a new master, and that is Jesus Christ. Plus, he's given us his spirit, which gives us life. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. I'm going to stop there. There'll be a lot of things. This is, I love this passage. There's a lot of good things in here. But for our understanding this morning, so understand that Paul, under, Paul recognizes the pathway of sorrow to repentance, and then there's new life in Christ Jesus. So a question I have for us to consider, is that the end of mourning? Blessed are they that mourn. Is that simply a mourning towards repentance to salvation? Are, are we done then? Is the, is the rest of life joy and joy alone? There are more to this whole idea of mourning. Because now we've been set free. What more could you ask for? What do we have to mourn over? Now we are free. We live through the Spirit. We live out the righteousness of the law that we were so frustrated with before. I have four basic points to give you this morning. I don't have them up on the screen. So the first one I think is foundational. We mourn for our own sin and brokenness separating us from God. That's kind of what Paul was alluding to here. We mourn for our own sin and brokenness, separating us from God. Without Christ, there just was no way to take care of that issue. All right, so that's, that's the first sense in which we mourn in Romans chapter 7. But now let's go down a little bit further in, in Romans 8. We already, we already looked at the first part here. Is there a further mourning that, we, uh, that Jesus is calling us to, that, that blessedness of mourning that he talks about in the Beatitudes? Is it just coming to him? for salvation, or is there a further mourning that happens? And I, I want you to understand here, of course, the answer is no. There is, a, there is more mourning. But I, I want us to understand that part of this is, is becoming or is more and more understanding the heart of God and the way he feels about sin and the way he feels about people and the way that begins to, that, that grief of his, uh, we also experience to some degree. Go down in, in chapter 8 of Romans, go down to verse 22. He mentioned a lot of things here, but if you go down to verse 22, um, he's talking, he just got done talking a little bit how the creation is also groaning because of its brokenness and corruption, waiting for uh, redemption. But in verse 22, <coughs> he says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also. Now, who's ourselves? He's talking about himself, those of us who are in Christ Jesus also a groaning that's taking place in us. Not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. All right, so we have the Spirit, which is the down payment. That's the first fruits. So even those who have the Spirit of Christ, they still have a sense of groaning and mourning and longing for something more because it's not done yet. We haven't been fully redeemed is what he's talking about. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. 
For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So he describes there is this groaning, this, this waiting for redemption, and the groaning comes from, even, it says even the creation groans. And I always think of that when there's an earthquake or there's a hurricane, and I almost sense the earth groaning and waiting for redemption as well. I don't know what all that is, but there is a sense where the, the creation, but also we, we know that this is not the way it was supposed to be. And we, we long for the day when Christ will make all things new again, when all things will be put back to right. But in the meantime, he says he gives us of his spirit, but we are even inadequate to pray the way we should. He says the spirit helps our infirmities. I looked up the word infirmities in the, in the concordance, and it's the idea of it's our feebleness. So a part of our groaning is, is we're still feeble. We're still frail. We still need, we need something more. We even struggle to pray the way we should. And he says the spirit knows our infirmities. The spirit knows our feebleness, and he with groanings intercedes for us to, to our father. So there's this continual mourning over desiring redemption. All right, so that's a second way in which we mourn. We mourn, uh, secondly, we mourn as we patiently wait in hope for our redemption in a broken world. We mourn as we patiently wait in hope for our redemption in a broken world. That can't help but uh, affect us as Christians when we find out about some of the, the sin that's happening around us in our world. Uh, we mourn when we see the violence of evil men committed against the innocent. We mourn over that. Uh, we mourn over the suffering of innocent children, many millions murdered in the womb. We mourn over that. We mourn over broken homes, uh, marriages that fail, children that are left in, in, a, in a divided home. We mourn over that. We mourn over the battered and abused among us. We mourn over the helpless and the oppressed. As Christians, as we have a sense of our own neediness and having received Christ, and then we see the brokenness around us, to mourn the way Christ calls us to mourn is to see that need and to mourn over it. Now, I'm, I'm going to end this by saying it's not without hope, but we need to feel that. And if you want to have the, the, uh, the perfect model, look at Jesus. How did Jesus come? And when he was here on this earth, Isaiah described him as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, some, one writer pointed out, he said, you never, you never read that Jesus laughed on this earth. And I thought about that. I was like, well, I think that's true. But then I thought of a lot of other Bible characters that it doesn't really say that they laughed either. So I'm not sure if that's an argument from silence or not. But clearly, he, he carried a lot of grief and a lot of sorrow. And it was not so much about what was happening in his own life, but it was a grief and a sorrow as he, as he saw the brokenness of the world around him and as he saw the effects of sin and corruption, and it grieved his heart. In John chapter 11, Lazarus, his good friend, dies, and it says that Jesus waited a couple days before he goes to see Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus comes to visit them, and of course Martha runs out to meet him, and, and they have a conversation. And uh, 
basically saying, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus gives her some assurance of the resurrection. But it doesn't mention that he's really moved yet. Then he goes on closer to the tomb, and then Mary comes. And Mary is torn up. Not only is she weeping, but it says the people around her weeping. They're weeping. And it says when Jesus saw that, it says he groaned in his spirit. Jesus was deeply moved by sorrow. Now, he already knew a miracle was coming. Was he simply grieving because for the last few days they were missing a brother? I think it was deeper than that. I think he grieved over death. He grieved over that it had to be this way because of sin. And I think his grief also was carried over because of what he saw. He saw the suffering of people in the middle of their grief, and it says, the one time we see it in the Bible, it says Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He was overcome by sorrow of death, of suffering, of pain, seeing its effects on what had been a good earth, a good world. Another time we see Jesus as he's last week of life as he's coming by Jerusalem and he's looking over the city and it says that he starts to mourn over the city he says Jerusalem Jerusalem oh Jerusalem the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to here who are sent to her how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing think about the sorrow of someone who wants to rescue another that's the sorrow of Jesus. He says, I, I, I came for you. I wanted to gather you. I wanted to, I wanted to show my love to you. You wouldn't let me. You weren't willing. You killed my prophets. He sorrows. He sorrows over the brokenness because in his mind's eye, I think Jesus saw the destruction that was going to come upon Jerusalem. And it did. Eventually it came. Jerusalem was destroyed. Judgment came. God's judgment. Jesus sorrowed. He sorrowed over the, over the brokenness of sin. He sorrowed over the decisions of people like Jerusalem. He has all kinds of sorrow. We also, as his children, he is the firstborn of many brethren, the Bible says. So we are, we are brothers with Christ in that sense. So we sorrow over the th- same things he does. So it's right for us. Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. It is right for us to feel that pain of brokenness around us. And like I said, that's not the end of the story. Brokenness and, and sorrow is not the end. Now, if you're in the world, it is. There's nothing to live for. That's why, we, that's why we shun sorrow, because there's no redemption to it. But we can, we can be in that sorrow because we have something to offer. Now, in, uh, I, already, I read part of Isaiah 53, or I mentioned it, how Jesus is described. But uh, Isaiah 61, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Isaiah 61, the first three verses, I want to show you a few contrasts here that it talks about for those who are in sorrow. Because the beauty of this beatitude is that, yes, we must mourn, yes, we must have sorrow, but it is followed by comfort, and the comfort comes from Jesus himself. In Isaiah 61, this is actually the passage that Jesus read in the synagogue when he was in, I think he was in his hometown, and he went forward to read the scriptures to those in the synagogue. And this is the passage he read, and it's about himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, 
and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. That's a very beautiful passage. But notice mostly here in verse 3. Verse 2, it ends by saying he's come to comfort all that mourn. He's the one that would offer that comfort. But notice the contrast here, he says. He says he will bring, he will bring beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes. Uh, ashes typify destruction, brokenness. Um, there's nothing very redemptive about ashes, right? You see a house burned down and you show up and there's just ashes. And it's all, all that's there is loss. And yet his promise is that he will bring beauty out of ashes. So there's no life that has been so broken, either broken by sin, uh, broken by difficulties and hardship. It can look like ashes, but he says he came to give beauty for ashes and replace those ashes with something very beautiful and redemptive. He says it's the oil of joy from mourning. The oil of joy. Two very extreme things. When you're in the middle of mourning, it doesn't look, it doesn't look very hopeful. Like how could there ever be joy again? Uh, if you've ever walked through, you know, you've been to many funerals or viewings, especially the ones where there's a tragic death. And when you walk through and you try to comfort those who have loss, you can almost just see the expression on their faces. It's, it's just a heaviness of mourning. And in the moment, you might feel like, well, could, could there ever be joy again? And yet Jesus says there will be joy. The oil of joy is re, uh, will replace mourning. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. If you've come to church on a Sunday morning with a spirit of heaviness, many of you have felt that before. You come with heaviness, it's hard to sing. It's hard to worship. It's hard to be excited about what's happening. But here he promises that this is, only, this is the kind of comfort Jesus gives us. He says, a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. So instead of having that cloak of heaviness, it's like putting on a coat of praise where we, where we see the hope that he's given us, the restoration, the redemption, all those things that he offers us. Those are the contrasts we see here um, in Christ here in Isaiah 61. So the truth that we have out of this is that Jesus comforts us by bringing joy into our pain. Jesus comforts us by bringing joy into our pain. That's the paradox of the kingdom of heaven. We have to experience sorrow and mourning so that we can experience the comfort that he has. So he does that for us on a personal level. There's nothing too difficult in your life that God can't restore and redeem. That may seem like a very trite statement, but it's true. There's nothing that we go through that Jesus can't bring healing and bring comfort and redemption. Sometimes when we're in the middle of those hard times, it's hard to see that. But it's true. Those who mourn, he promises, they will be comforted. That's only true in the kingdom of heaven. For those who are outside the kingdom, they do not have that promise of comfort. So the third thing was, he comforts us by bringing joy into our pain. And then the last one, number four, Jesus comforts us so we, so we can become channels of, com- of his comfort to others. Let me read that again. Jesus comforts us so we can become channels of his comfort to others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, it says this. Just listen to how he describes this. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He's a merciful Father. 
any young children that are here today, if you've ever experienced the comfort of your father, you know when there is pain, when there is a stub toe, when there is something hard that happens as a child, and dad comes and he gives a comforting hand, it just somehow makes it better, right? Well, that's our Heavenly Father. Everything that we're going through, whatever we experience in life, he said he is he's a father of mercy. His mercies are new every morning. He gives you a fresh start every day. And then he offers you comfort. He's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. To me, that is saying we become channels of God's grace to others. We become the channel of God's comfort. And so I, I would love for us to get a picture this morning that as you are experiencing this in your own life, as God and, and, and all the things that you've experienced in the past and are experiencing presently, as God brings you comfort and you experience his mercy, he does that. Not, it's for you. Clearly it's for you. But he does that. So that we comfort others. Now he wants to do it for them too. But for some reason he likes to use us. And so he uses us to bring comfort to others. That's why I think it's so important that we continue this mourning over sin. Now of course in our own lives, whenever we stumble in sin, uh, we mourn over it. We come to Christ and he, he quickly, he restores us and we have comfort. All right? This is an ongoing experience. We are, we, sometimes we stumble, but his comfort is instantly available to us. But one of the reasons why we mourn over the sin that's in our world and we, the brokenness we see around us, we mourn over that. Therefore, as God gives us grace and as he gives us comfort, we now come, we're the, we're the conveyors of that to those who have need and those who need help. Does that make sense? He comforts us so that we can comfort others. That's such a blessing. And when you've experienced that from someone else, you understand how oh, it's just like a balm to your soul. When someone offers you comfort, and when someone offers you mercy, like he does to us, we become channels of his comfort to others. Verse 5, he keeps do, doing these contrasts. I love how he does it here. So first of all, he comforts us so we can comfort others. And then he says, for the sufferings of Christ abound in us. All right, so you still have suffering as a Christian. All right, we still are going to face difficult things. So our consolation also abounds by Christ. So the heart, in other words, the harder your life gets and the more sorrow you have in life, the more comfort God is there. He's, he's there to give you just as much as you need. All right. He never runs out of resources. So don't ever believe that God is going to squash you some, somehow to the point where you, you just can't make it. So as, as suffering increases or as difficulties increase, his grace and his comfort, he calls it here his consolation, it also abounds. It's, it's up to the task. He always gives us what we need. Verse 6, and whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So now Paul again ties the idea of what we face, it's for your good. Because as we suffer and we learn how to be comforted, we do that for you in return. So you, you see Christ doing it for us and we do it for others. I love the comparisons there. Which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. I don't know if Paul could have restated this, the, this beatitude any better than that. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. He says, just know that as you are partakers of suffering, as you mourn through suffering and experience all these things, 
you will also on the back end, you are going to receive consolation. You will receive his comfort. It is a paradox. It doesn't seem to make sense. If you suffer, you will receive comfort. But it's true. It's true. Because God always gives us exactly what we need. And I, I want to reemphasize, too, that <clears throat> I described to you earlier the process of we need to come through this path of sorrow over sin to repentance to salvation initially. We must do that. But I think as even though uh, Romans chapter 8 talks about how the law of the spirit of Christ, uh, of, of the spirit in Christ Jesus, has, that's dealt with the law of sin and death. We still live in the flesh and we still sometimes stumble. We still sometimes fall. But the beauty of this idea of that, it, this continual mourning is that any time we stumble and fall, we can quickly go through that process of mourning and say, oh, God nailed it. Sorry, we mourn over that sin. And he instantly gives us forgiveness, gives us comfort. So it can be an ongoing experience that we receive, well, we experience sorrow and mourning. The comfort is always there. His comfort is completely uh, sufficient for our needs. For those who suffer outside of the kingdom of heaven, there is no hope of comfort, either in this life or in the eternal life to come. But we have a glorious hope. And I want to just end with a question for all of us to consider. Are we a church who has learned how to mourn? Mourning, first of all, for our own, maybe our own sinfulness, but mourning for the sin in others, mourning for the sin in our community and in the broader world around us. Do we mourn over the sin of others? And have we learned how to mourn and receive the comfort that Jesus offers us? Because the mourning is not an end in itself. We mourn so that we can receive comfort things that God does. So God bless you as you consider this. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Will we bow our heads and pray? Father, thank you.